today on DOOMED! De-radicalization or Nazi punching? This was the cause for some big debate online over the past few weeks. So today, well, on this episode of Doomed, I, Matt Binder, am going to listen to the interview with you all between Rihanna Joy Gray and, excuse me, I had a a frog in my throat. Is that the uh, the phrase? Anyway, Brianna Joy Gray and Talia Levin. Uh, and I'll listen to that interview, and we'll uh, we'll we'll talk, we'll discuss, we'll have a fruitful conversation about deradicalization and Nazi punching versus Nazi punching. Is it versus? Is it either or? Is it both? We'll talk about all that. Let me get to the. Uh, let me pull myself up on the screen here. Here I am. Now, I was planning on doing a a little bit of, uh, as uh, Sam Cedar, the majority part would say, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, I was planning on doing a a special bonus episode this week, in addition to the regular episode of Doom, which usually airs on Thursdays. Right now, I'm airing on Wednesday. Um, And uh, I realized that I'm going to be unavailable this Thursday. So what I'm doing is I'm taking that bonus that was supposed to be, And we're turning it into a full-fledged episode. And then next week, you'll get the full-fledged episode on Thursday, plus a bonus. Maybe I'll even do something over the next few days. I said this last week, but you got to bear with me. Keep, you know, follow me on Twitter at Matt Binder. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Matt Binder. And I will keep you in 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 line with what I'm doing. Just like with this episode where I literally uh, put out the uh, heads up to all of you. In like the past 30 minutes that I was going live. Uh, But anyway, sorry for all that, but it is what it is. Uh, So again, uh, if you're watching live, this is the show for today. Uh, Excuse me, this is the show for this week. No show Thursday, but if you're not watching live, no difference. This episode's going to go up. Uh, We'll be back next week with guests, uh, uh, you know, like I usually do for the interview. Uh, also, uh, something else to talk about. I was demonetized on YouTube this week. Uh, why was I demonetized? Because, uh, YouTube has a policy. Uh, well, actually I should be, you know, maybe I should milk it a little bit. Uh, I was, I'm being censored. Uh, I am a brave truth teller, uh, a dangerous truth teller. And... The uh, powers that be at YouTube or Google or Alphabet Inc. cannot take me wielding the sword of truth. I'm just too dangerous, just too powerful. So they're censoring me by stripping me of my monetization powers. Um, You may notice that you cannot uh, leave a super chat. That's right. No super chats today. You cannot leave a super chat. Excuse me, I needed a drink. Ah, this demonetization is really, you know, parched me. Uh, no super chats. I have been, uh, I will be down a couple hundred dollars this month thanks to this demonetization. And yeah. Uh, Ryan 
Uh, Lenin fan in the uh, chat, because it's not a super chat, in the YouTube chat asks, uh, I wonder what it was, the horse paste memes? Uh, I can, here it is, I'm going to be truthful to you guys. The idea that, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not one of those contrarians that needs to uh, peg every single uh, thing that happens to me uh, by a big tech company as some sort of issue of censorship, issue of the big man holding the little man down. What happened is YouTube has a policy where if you want to be monetized, you must create completely original content. You cannot reuse other people's content. This includes, and this is not, a, you might be going, oh, copyright issue is what had happened. Copyright issue is a big issue. Uh, copyright problems, big issue on uh, YouTube, especially people uh, claiming copyright on items they actually do not own. And that happens a lot. That's not what happened here. This has nothing to do with copyright. This policy covers people who even get permission to upload other people's things onto their channel. Uh, basically, it's just a policy that you need to have 100% original content uh, and not just reusing other people's stuff that's already on other, other channels. Now, you be one, may be wondering, Matt, you just basically do a live stream, which is yourself on camera, occasionally airing clips, which you remain on screen for and pause and add commentary, which would be considered fair use. But the majority of this is you, uh, maybe a guest, but it's your footage, completely original. Uh, and to that I say, yes, I agree. Uh, YouTube's automated systems have somehow flagged me as not having original content. So thus, I've been demonetized. YouTube has reached out to me and has asked me to upload a video to explain how I create my content so they could take a look. Uh, I will be doing that. It's quite ridiculous I need to do that when they could just literally look at this live stream episode right here, right now and see this is how I create all my content. Uh, it's either the live stream or I will cut a portion from the live stream, like a 10, 15, maybe 20 minute portion from the live stream that I feel could be a standalone segment. And I will upload that so it doesn't get lost within a long form, you know, Matt Binder uh, classic two, three, four plus hour stream. Um, but yeah, that's that's why I will be making zero dollars off YouTube uh, for the next couple of weeks. I will receive no revenue from any ads, which doesn't really make me that much. The ads are, are don't really make me that much on this channel. Uh, but no super chats either, and that is a hit. I would say I make anywhere from uh, two, three, maybe on a very good month, $400 from super chats um, a month. Uh, you know, again, not big money. I'm not going to go broke from it, but I'm also... Uh, uh, a worker, a working class individual who uh, lives fairly paycheck to paycheck. Um, and a couple hundred dollars is a, a, a big loss nonetheless. So that sucks. But it is what it is. It has nothing to do with YouTube censoring me. It has to do with completely arbitrary 
uh, non-political terms of service. And the real issue here, in my estimation, that we should be focused on is YouTube has dumb automated systems that flag content that don't fit YouTube's policies all the time. And YouTube is ridiculous, ridiculously slow to address them. Um, if there's any issue here, maybe you could make a case that it shows how YouTube focuses on the upper echelon of uh, creators. I'm sure if a big creator with millions of subscribers uh, got flagged for this and were going to be out there multiple thousands of dollars in revenue, uh, this would be solved fairly quickly, if not the same day. I would be surprised to see it not happen the same day. Uh, but for smaller creators such as myself... Uh, we have to send them videos and be uh, put under a process to get ourselves remonetized, even though it is their fault and we did nothing to get ourselves demonetized. It is what it is. So if you usually give, uh, you know, if you usually give super chats, if you usually support this show by watching the YouTube clips, of course, keep watching YouTube clips. Uh, when the super chats come back, keep dropping those super chats if that's what you prefer. But it shows that, you know, can't depend on YouTube for, uh, uh, you know, for a steady income. At least not until this channel gets bigger and YouTube uh, feels a loss themselves when uh, my channel gets demonetized. And so that means they would do something about it quickly. So to support this show, the best way to do so right now is to go to patreon.com slash Matt Binder. Uh, I've had no issues with Patreon. Um, the only time your payments have ever not gone through is when your payment has been declined due to credit card issues or, or whatnot. And, and Patreon does a very good job at, at trying to, uh, you know, let you know and then trying to re, uh, you know, recharge your credit card, seeing if you uh, fix the issues. So, yeah, Patreon.com slash Matt Binder. I've had no issues with them. Um, that's the best way to support this show. Uh, recurring $5 subscription. At, if, you, if you can, you could give less, you could give more. Um, you will get the bonus, uh, content, which right now is basically the audio of the second half of this program. Eventually, very soon, I, I feel like we're getting to a high enough number where it would make sense. There's enough patrons where to me it would make sense to just give them content you know because at first i didn't want to create content that just a few you know a handful of people can enjoy when i could use that content to basically put stuff more stuff out to to make the to get publicity for the show and you know get more content out there but we're getting to a point where i think there's enough people that we can give uh exclusive stuff to very soon so patreon.com slash mapbender is the best way to support this show right now without any further ado Without any further ado, let's get to the topic of this program. De-radicalization versus punching Nazis. Now, this caused lots of, uh, uh, I don't know, controversy. Big brouhaha on Twitter over the past couple of weeks. Basically, uh, Brianna... Uh, Joy Gray, uh, formerly uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, 2020 presidential campaign press secretary. Uh, she has a podcast called Bad Faith. It was originally a show with um, Virgil Texas, uh, formerly of Chapo Trap House, 
Uh, Virgil has not been on the program for a while for reasons that I, I, I are unclear to me. Apparently, there have been allegations against him. I've not been on the up and up. Uh, I worked with Virgil uh, for a short time at Cafe. He seemed like a good person. Uh, good dude, smart guy, um, but uh, I've uh, read, uh, I, haven't, I haven't found the allegations. If someone wants to send them to me, I'll be happy to take a look. Uh, I've read a summary somewhere, um, and if true, not good, not good, bad for him. Uh, and uh, uh, unfortunate that uh, that uh, young woman had to go through that. But anyway, uh, so Brianna Joy Gray, uh, of formerly Bernie Sanders' press secretary for his 2020 presidential campaign, has this show called Bad Faith. It's a podcast. And she had Talia Levin uh, on the show. I'm sorry if I uh, mispronounced her last name. Uh, both Talia and Brianna have been on this show before. It's been a while for both of them. Uh, both great guests. Um, both of them uh, are, uh, you know, we're, we're great. Uh, talking about the topics that I had them on this show. I, I, I follow both of them on Twitter. Uh, fans of their work um, over the years. Uh, Brianna was on this show to talk about the various fake stories that were being uh, pushed out by uh, Bernie Sanders haters, misinformation about Bernie Sanders. This was in 2018, though, before the 2020 campaign, before she worked for Bernie. Uh, and Talia was on this show to talk about white supremacy. Uh, I have to have Talia back on this show because I've not had her on to talk about her book, which is why she went on Brianna's show. But I just want to put up front, I am going to focus on the topic here. Um, will I criticize either individual at some point? Yes, but it will be within the realm of this discussion. There will be no discussion of the personal things that happened on Twitter between the two. And I have, you know, it's just not relevant to what I think is the big picture here. Uh, you know, obviously that discussion will come into play, but, you know, the, you know, the, the actual you know, attacks online between the two of them that go beyond the topic. I'm not really going to talk about much, if at all. Um, so let's get into this. I have the clip. Uh, I don't have the, first of all, I don't have the full clip. Bad Faith puts half the show beyond the paywall. Uh, I just am going to watch uh, on this public episode the half of the show that, Brianna put online for free. Uh, we will watch that. I will stop it many times, commentate on it. We will discuss. And uh, without any further ado, here is the clip from Bad Faith between Brianna and Talia on deradicalization versus punching Nazis. Let's do this. The way to get out of this mess and the way to resolve the political balkanation and the rise of right-wing extremism is going to require a deprogramming that is not going to 
it's going to require a, a broader deprogramming that accesses the core of what's driving people into these these communities at higher and higher rates, right? And that it's not necessarily going to be about saying you're racist and you're bad, even if that's 100% true, um, but that it's going to be about figuring out what compels an individual to find more solace in white supremacy than another kind of community. And so I wonder, like, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that as a leftist. You know, is there an incompatibility with wanting to do like have like a broad multiracial coalition and a kind of insistence? I mean, you're dealing with the, the a really narrow, extreme part of the country. So I don't want to say that every every conservative or every Trump voter is implicated in this conversation. But, you know, do you ever feel like there is a tension between kind of the need to coalition build and a perception of a certain segment of society as kind of untouchable? Um, I don't feel that tension. Mm. I understand that other people do. Mm. My, I'm in the punch a Nazi school of applied mechanics. Mm. Um, I have no sympathy for these people. And it's not just mm. at a personal peak, you know, because people talk about deprogramming, de-radicalization. Every time I give a, a book talk, like four or five of the questions are about like, can't we just kumbaya de-radicalize and like you have no idea what goes into de-radicalization like genuinely like de-radicalization this magical term that people use constantly uh is a years-long process requires you know people to be uh uh mentally ready to leave it's like analogous to quitting smoking it's fucking hard you know, it's and so let, let's get the shit right off the bat. It seems like there and, and from what I understand, this conversation, um, the reason Talia had an issue with it is because she did not think this is where the conversation was going to go. Now, Talia has a book that came out called uh, Culture Warlords. Basically, basically, it's about her undercover investigative work where she went undercover within white supremacist online circles for a year and a half and her experience with that. Uh, she is a, a Jewish woman um, and she has for you know, a long time has covered the far right and white supremacists and neo-Nazis. And she thought that this apparently was just going to be a conversation about the topic of her book. And Brianna brought in the conversation about de-radicalization. I don't have an issue with that, honestly. I think it's, I think that conversation can very well take part uh, in the broader context of, uh, you know, talking about white supremacy, to be quite frank. Um, it, it's, it's, it's part of that conversation. Um, you know, I, I, I know that she was unhappy with where this conversation went. That's her personal uh, uh, feelings on the matter. I, I think, uh, you know, so far, I think they're both talking about two separate things, though. Brianna is clearly talking about, uh, from a standpoint of, um, you know, leftist organizing, trying to basically uh, grow a coalition on the left Obviously, so it ends up working out via electoral politics as well, but also probably with mutual aid and other various activism, um, you know, and other direct action. 
Talia is looking at this from the perspective of, you know, the radicalization of an individual. I, you know, I, I, I think both, they're, they're really two different conversations, um, but they, you know, they overlap. But clearly, I think if one person's coming at it from one side and the other person's coming at it from the other angle, there's not going to be, um, you know, they're not, they're basically not talking about the same thing. Uh, let's keep playing. I'll get deeper into what I'm talking about, but I know they're about to to bring something up, which will roll into it all. Sometimes people might want to kill you for leaving, uh, you know, and so you have to be really fucking ready to leave. And most people don't want to. They enjoy it. They enjoy the cruelty. They enjoy the camaraderie. They feel community. They feel uh, uh, acceptance, right? So I think, uh, so if you're willing to engage in a years long emotional connection of extraordinary strength to the point where I've heard of like people marrying their de-radicalizers or spending years having dinner with their de-radicalizers only to like eventually maybe arrive at a sort of tenuous former status. Um, you know, if you're prepared to do that, fine, that's not scalable. What is scalable is saying like these sentiments are unacceptable you cannot show up in my town. You cannot show up in my university. I think that, that many people want to kumbaya because for them, the prospect of like standing up and like fucking punching a proud boy is uncomfortable and they want to see themselves as more tolerant. And like, I mean, for me, at least I'm like, cool, your conception of yourself as tolerant and marketplace of ideas -y and willing to coalition build Whatever, like matters more to you than my safety and the safety of like all the marginalized people that these people attack like I, I really uh, if I sound angry it's because I'm an angry person I'm also quitting smoking and also <laughs> fuck a Nazi like fuck them okay, I don't so care about them I don't care about their lives I want them to die like I listen Talia uh, you know her points about de-radicalization and the process and how it's not scalable are spot on. And I want to, I want to, I want to be straight up here. I, uh, people who listen to the show know that a major topic on this program, Doomed with Matt Bender, a major topic is discussing de-radicalization. I've done multiple episodes on it. Um, we've discussed it in the, uh, throughout the program with listeners, callers. Um, I am a, uh, advocate for debates, online debates, because I feel like anything you can do to pull people out, uh, from, uh, the right and far right extremist circles, white supremacy, neo-Nazis, uh, is a positive. And I personally have heard from people. And I know the majority port where I first started working, where I'm a, a regular weekly uh, co-host now. Um, I, I we've heard from people, listeners, and, and not a small number either, uh, who've reached out and said, "Listen, your show, what you guys do, has helped pull me out of the far right rabbit hole I was going down." And so. I think de-radicalization can be very powerful. And I frequently talk about what is the point of like, you know, engaging in some of these discussions if you don't have de-radicalization in mind. I always take that as 
and I, I don't know if I've ever been clear about it, but I want to be clear now. I have always looked at it as a 100% personal endeavor in, t- in terms of like how scalable it is. I look at it as, you know, if I can de-radicalize somebody or work in some way, I'm not going to take all the crowd. Obviously, you have, there's a lot more, I think, that goes on than just the, you, their favorite YouTube or whatever. They play a part, but obviously things in their personal family life, their friends, their real offline life plays a p- much bigger part. But, you know, to sort of help that person down the road away from that far-right rabbit hole is extremely important in basically helping get that person's life back to them, their friends, their family members. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't claim, you know, I, I'm not saying like, oh, I care about, like I, on a personal level, like I don't know these people, but it does seem important that, you know, people lose family members, lose mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, whatever. And they can get them back when they are de-radicalized. And that's super important to me. You know, to be able to know that there's, you know, life brought back to somebody. Whereas they could have lived this horrific, hateful existence and possibly done something that ended landed them in prison for the rest of their life. Um, it, that's, that's, you know, that's important. But the idea that de-radicalization can be done on some sort of level for winning a, you know, winning them over to for a broad, you know, leftist coalition, I have never advocated for that. I've never talked about that within the possibility of de-radicalization. It, you, you can't. You can't. You're going to be dealing. You're going to spend that time on a handful of people. When, you know, to get them on your side and for what, for what? It's just not, you're not going to, the numbers are just not going to matter. Again, de-radicalization on a level of like saving somebody's life, super important. You know, a well worthwhile cause if that's what you want to do. But to think that doing that is going to somehow build the left equal some sort of electoral victories down the line. I think you're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. Yeah, I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I have no patience. No so, patience. So totally, I, and the more um, we socially marginalize these views, the more we make them unacceptable, the fewer people will join. If you deplatform someone, if you play whack-a-mole enough, like you make it annoying and difficult, you dox people, you get them their jobs lost for for holding these views publicly, for saying that they want to burn Jews and, and kill, you know, N-words. Uh, uh, you make it socially absolutely poison to do these things. So is there evidence of that, Talia? Is there ev- is absolutely evidence of that based on everything we've seen from on-the-ground white supremacist organizations and neo-Nazis since 2017 when Trump got voted into office. I mean, you can even go further back to 2015, 2016 when Trump announced his presidency and gave these guys, a uh, his presidential campaign, I should say, and gave these guys uh, a, a, a uh, you know, a microphone and uh, the, the cojones to step out from the shadows and their secret, you know, 
uh, in-home meetings and allowing them to march in the streets in the numbers they did. We have seen that. Just look at their numbers dwindle from 2017 when I feel like they were at their peak in the streets to now. Um, There's still obviously a big uh, quote-unquote war raging, especially in the Northwest, specifically with like Proud Boys and one percent, uh, three percenters, like Patriot Prayer types. Um, we're, we'll monitor where that goes, uh, but the numbers have greatly dwindled. Look at Charlottesville. Look what happened after Charlottesville. They got overzealous. They were met by a huge anti-fascist counter-protest. They were probably the biggest clashes between fascists and anti-fascists there's been in, in quite some time at Charlottesville. And it got so heated, a fascist got in his car, rammed a bunch of protesters, killing a, a woman. And they basically have not been able to show their faces uh, since in those numbers. Every time there's been something going on, the anti-fascist counter-protesting to them have been so big they've had to question whether it's worth it. And every time it gets smaller and smaller. I mean, the, 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 the evidence could not be any clearer. I mean, Richard Spencer became a joke, starting with the punch in the face, the punch heard around the world at the uh, Trump inauguration protests, and then leading it to Charlottesville a couple uh, months later. I mean, he's, he's become a joke. His organization is broke, I believe. Milo Yiannopoulos has become a joke. Baked Alaska is a joke. The Proud Boys, again, except for a certain uh, chapters that seem to mainly be focused in the uh, northwestern part of this country, they've become a joke. Gavin McGinnis doesn't show his face anymore. that that approach because you say you know you say that that your the approach you're describing is scalable and the deradicalization approach isn't but what strikes me is that it seems like there has been a radicalization radicalization approach that has been taking years you know other the radicalizers are happy to take years and pursue this project um, and that they have been able to scale it at a significant degree that in some ways, and we've talked about the Powell memo on the show a lot, but it's this, you know, famous memo by soon-to-be Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell, where he set out an agenda for the conservative party in the 1970s and said, well, look, we're losing the culture wars. This is how we fix it. And they, it was, it was, you know, 30 years before Fox News, which was one of the goals of the Powell memo, a right-wing news organization manifested. And, you know, we're just now seeing the apotheosis of their efforts to take the Supreme Court and all of this stuff, right? And that there is a way that the long game, I think, while frustrating and not as um, instant gratif- instantly gratifying, is very effective. On the other hand, I'm concerned about what it means to say something like, 
we don't let them into our towns. We don't let them into our universities. Just as an, on a logistical level, I don't know what that even begins to look like. And so I am skeptical about the idea that that in and of itself could be scalable. You're completely entitled to your skeptic. I'm, I'm not quite sure what she's trying to say here. Is she, is she claiming that there's some sort of state action that we're, that anti-fascists uh, advocate for? That's not the case. Um, uh, it's scalable because we've seen it. We've seen the numbers come out when there are these white supremacist marches or rallies or events in public spaces. Uh, we've seen religious figures, clergy come out. We've seen uh, anti-racist groups come out. We've seen anti-fascist groups come out, specifically uh, see uh, people who identify as Antifa. We've seen black bloc uh, come out, anarchists, leftists, socialists. Uh, the DSA comes out. Uh, I mean, it seems pretty scalable to me, and we see these folks come out. Uh, and meet these uh, fascist events in the streets. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. Like well, but, the but... Laven, the Laven memo then <laughs> is a thirty-year-long plan of fuck like racism and make it unacceptable, make it pariah, make it uh, uh, like throw it onto an island and and and, and an ice floe and do what that does it look? through just... physical uh... violence and 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 uh, and you know. Through everything from physical violence to doxing to uh, public protest, you use every tool at your disposal. And no, I have no interest. I have no interest in building a coalition with these people. I I agree. I agree. Uh, we've seen all of these things from doxing to protests uh, be very successful and very effective. And again, this is activists doing the work, which they're free to do, just like the Nazis and white supremacists are free to go out and have their marches and rallies, right? The state's not stopping them. Um, I mean, you know this works because you can see the results because that's what has been being done for years now. You may. Uh, but the least, the you know, the the less attractive you can make these ideas seem. Uh, to bring back the smoking, uh, you know, analogy: few, fewer people smoke because you can't smoke in a movie theater. Fewer people smoke because you can't smoke in a bar. Fewer people smoke because you have to stand on a street corner and feel like shit. You know, so it's true. It's honestly true. The local laws. Uh, you know, I'm in New York City, so I can tell you from New York City example. When New York City banned smoking indoors. That did tons more than all of the Surgeon General warnings and all of the uh, anti-drug, uh, you know, uh, commercials and anti-smoking ads uh, and PSAs that went out over the years. Once it no longer became a sociable thing to do, once society looked at this as not something it really wanted to be around people or at least a lot of people most people decided it really wasn't worth their time 
was it, Talia? What was it that made you at this point decide to quit smoking? I've been running and I wanted to be able to run more. So it wasn't, it wasn't that people kind of harangued you and said smoking is bad. Oh, they, that helped. That helped. (laughs) No, but even Talia's example of her own, it, it makes complete sense. Um, she wanted to do more activities that smoking inhibits. The idea that other runners would look down, other people in the athletic or exercising or whatever community, the running community, would look down upon that, would prohibit Talia from taking part in that community. If she was to even just ask somebody, hey, I want to run more, you know, bring my mileage up or steps up or whatever it is. I'm not a runner, so excuse me if I'm getting the terminologies wrong, but follow me here, folks. Uh, What can I do? And the runners in this online community said, hey, uh, do you smoke? And she said, yes. I mean, they would say, well, there's your problem. You need to quit smoking to up your running capabilities. I mean... But I presume that people have been saying that sort of thing since whatever it was you started smoking. It's bad for your health, blah, blah, blah. I mean, listen, like, smell, I don't, you know, I don't that think that say. I'm going to be able to convince you. I think if you want to, like, hold hands with a, you know, Nazi and kiss them gently on the cheek, that's fine. I just don't think Tell that's going to work out well you, for you. Do you think that what I'm arguing for is that I, I, I Brianna Joy Gray... Uh, who was sitting before you as a black woman wants to hold hands with Nazis and kiss them in the street. I have a problem with this part. First of all, do I think Brianna is a Nazi? No. Do I think Talia was calling Brianna a Nazi? No. She's clearly using the example of people who are advocating to work with Nazis. She's saying, you know, you're trying to do the kumbaya thing with them, right? That's the, it's the same thing she's saying just in a different way. But here's my problem with this. Uh, Very bizarre to see somebody like Brianna using uh, identity here because we know that being a black woman uh, in 2021 in the current political sphere we are in uh, actually does not really mean explicitly that you will be uh, anti-far-right Uh, extremism. I mean, the idea that a person of color is by by default anti-racist or anti-fascist is not true, as we know, in the current modern day version of fascism. We've seen people in the LGBT community, white supremacists, neo-Nazis. We've seen Black women, such as Candace Owens, uh, let's use the terminology Talia used, hold hands and kiss a Nazi on the cheek. She's literally out there with Larry Elder talking about how if we uh, gave reparations to descendants of slaves, why are we also not giving reparations to descendants of slave owners. They lost their property, didn't they? This was literally a recent conversation between 
Candace Owens, a black woman, and Larry Elder, a black man. Uh, Enrique Tarrio is the leader of the current premier white supremacist, at least in the streets, uh, at least visibility-wise, white supremacist organization, the Proud Boys, the group that helped lead the Capitol riots on January 6th, the group that is terrorizing the northwest of this country with what seems like almost weekly now uh, marches where they're just attacking members of the community wherever they may be. I mean, this is a extreme, like, again, I don't think Brianna is a Nazi. Obviously, I don't, I'm not even, I'm not, I don't mean, I don't mean to say think. I know Brianna is not a Nazi. But her defense of herself is lazy and just not accurate. There's much better ways to defend yourself of that accusation, which again, I don't think Tali was even accusing her of being. But that ain't it. I'm not trying to debate you at all here. I'm just, I'm trying to explore what I think are some tensions that I too am wrestling with. And I, and I would hope that since we're both members of this group, uh, of these groups that certainly see no benefit in appeasing Nazis, that we can have a conversation that doesn't presume that where we're coming from is because of some natural sympathy with these groups, as opposed to genuinely trying to strategize about how to, how to fix this problem that we very much agree on, which is that America is being increasingly radicalized in these no, extremist I, I just, like, ways. I feel like I've stated my position. I don't think that's the problem. Americans are being radicalized in extremist ways. I mean, radicalized how? Are you explicitly talking about right-wing radicalization? Um, I mean, in my estimation, that is a problem. I would say information uh, overload and then misinformation tied in. And I would say that plays a huge role to begin with in bringing people to that. So that would come first to me. Um, let's continue. And repeatedly. And then I don't, I don't quite know how to react other than like to respond other than like, no, I really believe what I believe. Like I really think like that, that, that stigmatization, that pariah, dumb, that, that, uh, that physical confrontation, that, you know, I think people think that they're too cool for anti-fascism. People think anti-fascism is lame. I think anti-fascism is cool. Cool as hell. I mean, honestly. <laughs> um, Antifa is cool. People think that, uh, you know, it's it's gauche. It's not enough. Yes, of course, I believe that like we should have Medicare for all. That we should have social like safety net policies. That we shouldn't like leave people to be deprived alone. Like uh, to feel like these senses of loss and uh, at, like you know the 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 elements of vulnerability to radicalization are like very common human emotions is, is feeling lost is feeling lonely is feeling uh purposeless and like you know everything we can do to mitigate those feelings in such large masses of the population like 
that's great. Uh, I think there are many constructive things you can do to fight Nazism that don't involve like, you know, brass knuckling up and, and like just flattening the nose of a proud boy. But like, I think you have to be willing to brass knuckle up and, and, and flatten the nose of a proud boy too. Like there, there is no space for coalitional politics with these people to my mind. So one of the, I think, parts of the book that I found to be really interesting was when you were talking about um, how banal many of these individuals were when you were talking to them on the on the websites, on the dating site, right? And how the banality of their lives was abutting these, like, really horrific belief systems. And you would go from talking about, you know, casually, oh, I'm making my pork and bean dinner or whatever, to you know, Jews, let's kill them. Am I right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or like, let's talk about the, you know, N words. Yeah. So I remember when I was, you know, reading that, that, that section, um, you know, you explained that the banality almost made it feel, made you feel less empathy for, for these people. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about the kind of emotional reaction you had to being that close and in those intimate spaces and, having these people trust you in that way with these incredibly ugly parts of their, of their lives. Um, yeah. I mean, for me, it's like, so uh, you'll see so often in journalism about, uh, about Nazis, this shock that they're people like, it's like, like there was an infamous sort of New York times profile of Tony Hoveter, who's a, you know, pretty well-known white supremacist um was like oh my god like he has a wife and a house and like he made dinner and like you know he didn't like i don't know jizz a swastika onto the wall while making pasta like i mean it's that level of parodic like oh my god nazis are people too and i'm like of course they're people you start with the presumption that they're people with whole lives with moral universes as complex and wild as yours and mine and like you start with the assumption that these are ordinary people. And then you see what these ordinary people have dedicated their lives to. And if that doesn't make you fucking mad, it makes me fucking mad. Yeah. So I I mean, I mean, for me, I, I, I don't know. uh, Listen, I don't know where this is going to go. I assume it's not going somewhere good, but I agree with what Talia's perspective here is and that that makes it like, worse to me like it's not like oh my god they're people too it's that the order this ordinary person just looks at their hatred the same way like it's it's not something that's like you know they're they're not some like uh cinema uh you know hollywood-esque caricature the danger here is they're your next door neighbor they're your 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 cousin, maybe your brother or sister. You don't even, you don't know. Family member. I mean, that's the dangerous part. That's the part that does, you know, should make you enraged and want to do something. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't absolve them. Their humanity doesn't absolve them. Their humanity condemns them for it. What's, so I, I completely relate to this um, frustration that folks are shocked about the fact that races aren't, you know, some separate breed or species that, you know, are easily identified by, you know, tentacles or something. Like, I, I totally relate to that 
that feeling. At the same time, when I was reading your description of these lives, what struck me was not necessarily that they were so average, but there were some ways in which it did feel very atypical. Um, the pe- A lot of the guys that you described, you know, you talk at length about the, the describing the incel movement and voluntary celibates, that a lot of these men have very little in the way of kind of romantic or social infrastructure in their lives at all. You describe one guy making dinner and that he makes the same kind of it was kind of a bizarre, very <laughs> imbalanced meal of like pork and beans or something every single no, night. No, it was beef and canned beef and pineapples. Canned beef and oh yes, <laughs> it was it was it was beef and and like canned beans and then a swig of pineapple juice to break it up. I guess so he doesn't get scurvy, <laughs> you know. And I, I remember reading reading that and thinking, oh well, this. I mean, in some ways it's banal because he's like a guy making dinner every night, but in other ways, the the details of his life point to me to be point point to someone who is not a functioning member of society and has a lot of other things going on um, that led me not to say it's an, it absolves him of any way because there are a lot of poor people who aren't obviously white supremacists. In fact, obviously disproportionately poor people in America are not white at all. But it, it it did, I, I got to confess, it did make me not feel empathy for the person, but it made me see, say, this is a point, this is a tension point for political radicalization. Like, this is an opportunity to provide, like, provide something that could lead this person to want to make different kinds of choices. If, in fact, part of what's driving him to be a white supremacist are these other aspects of his life that seem very unpleasant and bad and that no one should be dealing with and living like. And I wonder if there was ever... I mean, it's difficult because it is it is difficult to talk about this without feeling like you're letting people off the hook for their loathsome behaviors. But in a practical way, I guess as someone who doesn't see a lot of utility in telling people that they are bad um, as changing their mind. Like if I thought it worked to just be like Nazism is horrible and you shouldn't be a Nazi, then I'd be like, yes, we should just put that on every bridge and tunnel in America and that would solve the problem. I mean, I, I say we give that a shot. Like, I mean, honestly, like, if, if people showed up en masse every time there was a right-wing march. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm repeating myself here, but we have already, I feel, we've we've seen the results in when you make this into something that society as a whole looks at as reprehensible. And yes, obviously, all society clearly looks at white supremacy and neo-Nazis reprehensible. But if you put it out there face-to-face, in their face, all the time, and you, you know, and you make it so they cannot walk around without someone seeing the paraphernalia they're wearing or walking around with, and then looking at the signs all in their town that show that paraphernalia as something deplorable. I mean, if people bothered to do that instead of deciding that the pragmatic approach is sympathy for the devil. Well, are those, well, again, I wouldn't characterize it as sympathy for the devil, but are those things mutually exclusive? Is showing up to a right wing march um, the way, you know, Antifa and some groups do? And and there ha- you know there are often counter protests, you know is that count is that is that mutually exclusive with saying there needs to be long term deradicalizers people like you know Daryl Davis who we brought up on this podcast many times before 
who do engage in that more long-term effort. And, you know, I mean, Daryl Davis politically... is a wonderful person. Daryl Davis is also one man. Shannon Foley Martinez is another example of someone who works with formers. But Again, this is isn't... not scalable. These are, these are years long, immensely intimate, emotional stuff. I think if you want social policies that make life less of a hideous, precarious ladder over an abyss, fine. But know that every one of these people is going to fight you every step of the way of implementing these policies because they will go to people of color too. So like, why, why is, I mean, I've heard so many people, especially when I was talking about, you know, when I was part of the conversation earlier this year after Jimmy Dore had a Boogaloo boy on his program to espouse pro-Boogaloo boy uh, rhetoric. Um, and people bringing up folks like Daryl Davis who have done good work in reaching out and basically de-radicalizing individuals. But, you know, Talia hits the nail on the head here. Like, these are individual people who go out and associate with other individuals. And work over a long period of time to bring those people out of the KKK or whatever white supremacist organization they're part of. This is not scalable. Also, Daryl Davis is not doing this to organize. Like, he's not doing this to build a leftist coalition. Like, to bring in KKK members... I mean, here, looking right now, Davis eventually went on to befriend over 20 members of the KKK and claims to have been directly responsible for between 40 and 60 and indirectly over 200 people leaving the Klan. Now, indirectly, we don't know. Again, indirectly, we don't know what happened with those those people. But directly responsible for between 40 and 60, I mean, that's not scalable and when we say de-radicalize um you know we're talking about simply they're not part of the kkk they left the clan that doesn't mean they all of a sudden open their eyes to socialism and become leftists i mean they could still be conservatives they can still be republicans they could still vote for the right And this is someone who's basically dedicated his life to doing this. Years. Just to bring a few dozen people out of the KKK. Again, on a human level, that's incredible, extraordinary. Hopefully the dozens of people who he helped ended up, you know, living a, a, a good life with their family and their friends and people they wouldn't have associated with previously and they're living a positive existence. Uh, but in terms of what Brianna is focusing on, organizing, I, I just don't see how this this works. Why is it an individual act? What are you Daryl even Davis? advocating for? Well, I, 
Well, I'm, let's try to figure that out, Talia. I'm, but I'm curious about is why is it an individual act when someone like Daryl Davi- uh, Davis does what he does? Um, for those who don't remember, uh, Daryl Davis is a black man who, you know, famously has a number of like Klan robes in his closet because every time he talks a Klan member out of being in the Klan, they like they give him a robe and he's like he's like the great, anti- you know, Klan whisperer. Um, and he's also a, a, apparently a very renowned jazz musician. Um, but it's 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 interesting to me to see it as an individual act when it's Daryl David, but not an Davis, but not an individual act when an individual decides to put brass knuckles on and punch a Nazi. Well, the, it, I mean, this is pretty obvious if you ask me. Uh, Daryl Davis individually uh, committed to a project, a personal project, where he befriended members of the Klan. This wasn't some sort of group effort, as far as I've been concerned, as far as I know about uh, Davis's work. Whereas you don't see a singular individual knuckling up and meeting with the Proud Boys by themselves. Anti-fascist, on-the-street, counter-protest is a group effort. If one anti-fascist shows up, at a Proud Boy event, they ain't going to be able to do anything because it's a communal action. This is so bizarre. I, I don't understand the question here. I mean, it's clear as day to me. Daryl Davis would not have stopped a singular clan event that he showed up to. Anti-fascist time and time again, straight up shut down whole neo-Nazi, white supremacist, fascist events because they show up in communal, for a communal effort in numbers. What I'm, what I'm questioning is this, the scalability. The reason I'm questioning it is because I think most people, a lot of people aren't going to feel able or safe to do the Nazi punching, right? So it doesn't seem to me, I I would say like, why not both? If you if you are a adherent to Nazi punching, I mean, great. I mean, like, fine, fine. I'm certainly not arguing against that. I don't think Talia is arguing against that too. I think she is not anti-de-radicalization. She's anti, anti-de-radicalization as an official like effort to broadly destroy a fascist movement. Uh, it's, it's like she said over again in this interview, it's just not scalable. You're not going to de-radicalize tens of thousands of people. I mean, hundreds of thousands, honestly, I think if, if, if not millions, um, and I'm not saying everyone who voted for Trump is in this group, because I don't think that either. I think a lot of people who just, they're not that political voted for Trump. Um, an easy person to, uh, it's one thing Trump was good at, easy person to get if you're not political and would adhere to, you know, would, are open to some of the ideas he put out. Not all of them probably, but some of the ideas he put out because they're simple. They're, they're stupid simple. So if you're not political, you may slightly lean in that direction in some areas, you go out and vote for a presidential election and then you, you tap out for the rest of the four years and then you come back for the next presidential election. I think that is probably the majority of the people who vote in general, not just even for Republicans. 
Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, the, this whole interview is baffling to me because I, I do think Italia handles herself quite well, which is why I think it's unfortunate that she, um, was so outspoken against it being, uh, published. Uh, I, I, I don't think Brianna was um, attacking her or being, uh, you know, over the top. I mean, clearly, I do think she was being antagonizing in, or in order to get uh, good material. Uh, it's clear from how she cut things up and posted them and, and promoted the show and advertised for the show that she uh, reveled in the uh, controversy, which I get it. Uh, but I don't think there was really a controversy. I think without that controversy, if you're watching this, you look at Talia uh, clearly define the positions. And I think she comes out much better in this interview than Brianna does. It's the post interview stuff that I think. And I understand that Talia walks out of the interview at some point. I don't believe it's in this part, the, the, the public uh, part of the interview that I have. Um, clearly she probably looks bad doing that. Um, but in what I've viewed the, uh, 20 plus minutes we're going to watch right now, we're almost done. Uh, I think Talia comes out looking much better than Brianna in terms of explaining her position and, uh, advocating for why, uh, her position makes sense. But I am concerned about saying that we want to minimize the potential effects of doing the alternative approach. And why, what I wanted to, why, the reason I wanted to talk to you about that, Talia, is because you have an exposure to what it's like to be in those spaces and potentially some insights that other folks who haven't engaged in that project don't have. And I'm curious to pick your brain about whether or not, for example, when you're on these dating sites, you know, do you ever engage in any kind of conversations that tried to see what would happen if you raised doubts about being a white supremacist or, you know, brought up, well, there's this one black person at work who's okay. And sometimes, you know, what, what, no, what are those, those kind of conversations? Like? Happen. Those conversations bar in cell spaces, bar women, like the white date.net is white date.net. Like what I'm supposed to write to people who are talking about like the evil Marxists and darkies and, and say like, um, actually like white people aren't so bad after all. I mean, Honestly, if I had known that this was going to be an extended conversation about the utility of de-radicalization versus anti-fascism, I would absolutely have not agreed to be on this podcast because I've gotten this banal question over and over and over again, and I loathe it. At this I point. totally get Ty's position, but I think she's, I think she's done a great job, and I think uh, you know the more eyes you could get in front of this, I, I listen. I come from maybe an, a, 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 the complete opposite of Talia on this in terms of. Uh, 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 messaging. I also enjoy these types of uh, heated sometimes debates and conversations. I get that other people it's not their it's not their thing, but listen, I think she's done a really good job so far in this. So it's unfortunate she feels that way. I, I also think you know Brianna uh, goes at it in a way which I totally understand, you know, it, it could be frustrating. But I mean, I think she's coming out on, on top in terms of 
actual substance. Right, like people, like I, I, I mean, I understand coalition building and desires, but like I, 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 I find it that like most people aren't capable of engaging in like the with this level of like being in those spaces is it fucking like dipping your head in acid and i did it for a year and a half i wouldn't ask anyone else to do it and i wouldn't expose myself to emotional intimacy with those people on a real level like not through the mask of an avatar i don't like i i wouldn't i mean maybe because i'm a jew i wouldn't wind up radicalized in the same way but like anyone is susceptible to propaganda like like asking people to like 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 imbibe white supremacist propaganda and engage in emotional intimacy with white supremacists which is what de-radicalization entails a deep 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 emotional intimacy of years-long relationships of talking conversation and like yes that is inherently more personal than a punch in the face uh you know like I've done some crazy shit. Like just even after the book, like around the election, I, I was, you know, undercover and like, uh, uh, like the three percent Georgia's security force, uh, uh, like walkie-talkie channel. Uh, I had a false identity. I had a false face. I did an over an hour long interview. I had backstory, emotions. I talked to people. You know, it's hard. It's hard to do that. It's fine. But I had a. a mask i had the protection of a lie to cover me uh if i had just been naked to those sentiments like i don't know that i would have even gotten through it like it was hard enough as it was uh like this stuff is aqua regia these conversations that take place in nazi chat rooms these conversations that take place on these forums are poison they are poison and they are perpetual radicals perpetual emotion machines of radicalization um so yeah like maybe i mean and if you went in and you said like hey like knock it off don't talk about immigrants that way you just be kicked out and they'd like and they'd well, I, don't, anyway. I don't know that that's what i said talia but that 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 characterization aside i i totally understand and would never ask anybody to engage in de-radicalization either i mean i i've had this conversation in other contexts where you know there's a certain strain for example of political discourse among a lot of kind of Black liberals that will say, it's not my job to teach you about racism. You know, it's you educate yourself, pick up a book, you know, that kind of lingo, which is fine. It's extremely taxing. I've spent my entire life as a black woman in predominantly white spaces being called upon to do exactly that. And it is sometimes tiresome. I remember thinking in law school at a certain point, somebody should be paying me a professor salary instead of asking me to pay, pay the institution because of all the work I'm doing with my classmates after class ends explaining to them this crap that the teachers in many respects aren't qualified to cover, even though it's directly germane to the material. So I certainly empathize with that. But I also wouldn't ask any individual to engage in a physical altercation with a Nazi. I'm not asking anybody to do anything. I don't think Talia is asking anyone to do that either. I would never advocate for any specific individual to do something that uh well a they wouldn't want they didn't want to do or b uh especially on the, the highlight this one that would put their own well-being in harm in harm's way i don't think talia is claiming 
to tell any specific people to do something uh, violent. I think she's just advocating for the fact that that is the most uh, meaningful way to approach the growing white supremacist neo-Nazi movement. Uh, I mean, I don't think that is a mischaracterization there uh, from me. What I'm trying to explore is the potential political utility of different kinds of options and to assess how effective de-radicalization actually is. I'm not making a claim or an argument right now. What I'm trying to do is have a conversation about what the limitations of various approaches are so we as a community can figure out the best way to go forward. I mean, I am just curious why you would ask a militant anti-fascist to talk about the utility of de-radicalization. This seems like a setup for frustration for both of us. Well, you know, I, I certainly... I disagree there. I think there is utility to the conversation. Do I think uh, Brianna is going about it in the most productive way? No. Um, but I do think there's utility in the conversation. And I do think even militant anti-fascists, I mean, I consider myself to be anti-fascist, obviously. And I think um, de-radicalization is an important tool. Uh, but it is not one to build a movement uh, or to dismantle an entire movement. It's something to address at the individual level. I'm not intending to frustrate you, and I'm I I'm not I'm not so frustrated. I I mean I think it's I think it's interesting. I'm asking you the questions that naturally raised in my mind when I read your book. Is there some aspect of the book that you would prefer to talk about? I mean, we haven't really talked in detail about what the book actually lays out, so. I want to give you an opportunity to tell the audience what you think the biggest takeaway is and why you think that they should read it, what what it is, in fact, about what your goals were in writing it. My goal was to uh, make people aware of the perniciousness of the threat, make people aware of some of the ideological bases and the emotional bases that radicalization rests on. Uh, my encouragement was specifically to uplift the anti-fascist movement and to encourage people to become active anti-fascists, militant anti-fascists. Uh, it is explicitly a book endorsing uh, action of all kinds, including from behind the keyboard, behind the keyboard and in the streets to head this radicalization, the, 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 this radicalized movement of people who want to kill people that look like me and my family and people who look like you and your family. Uh, and head them off the pass and, and to fight as urgently as they are fighting. Hey, YouTube, don't... I, I, I think it is so bizarre to focus on bringing right-wingers to the left in order to build a movement or win electorally. It is beyond ridiculous to discuss that as a strategy. There are 80 million non-voters in terms of even the last presidential election. 80 million people did not vote in the 2020 presidential election. 
80 million. You can view that as them not being political. You can view that as them not finding a reason to support either Trump or Biden. Whatever the reason may be, 80 million people did not find it necessary to vote in the 2020 presidential election. The largest, the biggest election in United States history in terms of turnout. Both candidates, Biden and Trump, broke records, made history with their vote totals. Biden, most votes for any candidate in the history of the United States. Trump, the most for any Republican candidate. And he would have been most if Biden didn't outdo him in that very same election. 80 million people did not find it necessary to vote in that election. Did not feel inspired to do so. Did not care enough to do so. Why you would not engage with them? Look at those 80 million people as, you know, the gold rush. Fertile ground to reach out to and bring them into the political sphere, educate them on leftist, socialist ideology, pro-labor, pro-union, anti-racist, anti-fascist ideology. You're basically saying, here's 80 million people who have a clean slate, completely open to anything. And here you have a much smaller portion of that who uh, hate you and everything you stand for. Who are you going to spend time on? And there is this bizarre subsection of people who look at those people on the right and go, I'm going to focus on them. I'm going to even spend a morsel of time on them makes no sense. No sense. If you're looking at this at a movement building or electoral standpoint. Zero sense. If you care about de-radicalization, it's on an individual basis. You see somebody, you see an opening, you want to get them out of there. I think that is an extremely important endeavor. It is a net positive for one less person to be in that hateful world. But you're not going to build a movement doing that. You're just not. Um, the, you know, this, this, this is all I have for this interview, but there's more. 
And uh, I will play that on the second half of the show. By the way, the second half of the show is patron bonus episode 100. I have done 100 bonus patron-only episodes, live streamers, uh, I'm excuse me, live stream viewers, you can stick around, no need to leave, you can watch this live, but if you're not catching it live and you want to hear the audio version, you got to become a patron and catch patron bonus 100. Go to patreon.com slash mattbinder to support this program. Uh, I appreciate any support you can give. Um, I'm going to thank the people who became patrons since the last episode of this show. And then we will jump into more content. So when was the last episode of this show? September 9th, right? So let me go back. Okay, so the latest patron uh, members are Taylor K., Dr. Gus, Chris S., Henry Lewis K., and joining me just now during the program, Nick J. and Anthony C. Thank you all for subscribing to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash mapbinder. Remember, we were just demonetized by YouTube for a stupid, stupid policy infraction that actually uh, is not accurate. This show was wrongly flagged by YouTube's automated systems as using <coughs> other people's content. All the content on this channel is exactly how you see right now. Me on camera, live streamed, sometimes watching clips in a fair use manner because I'm commentating throughout. Uh, I will get that fixed as soon as possible, but that means I will take a hit. Uh, until it's fixed. So if you could support this show by becoming a patron subscriber, Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash mattbinder, I greatly appreciate it. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash mattbinder. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram at mattbinder. Search me everywhere else, mattbinder. You'll find me, friend me, like me, whatever. Um, what else? What else? Doomthecast.com for the podcast version of the show. Rate this pod podcast.com slash doomed rate this podcast.com slash doomed uh we'll bring you all the links to where you can leave podcast reviews please do so if you can it's a big help especially on apple Podcasts. it's a big help you can just click the star rating if you want it also helps to leave a written review if you can but whatever you prefer um what else uh, i think that's it for today uh give me a minute to refill my drink my soda and i will be back with more remember if you're watching on the live stream you can stick around there's more content i have more clips to show you if you are not then uh and you're not a patron subscriber then uh this is where i tell you see you next time on doomed